Father God, we first just come to you in praise. You are the everlasting God who has been faithful through every storm and who will be faithful forevermore. We also come to you in confession. We are broken people in need of you each and every day. We've strayed like lost sheep this week following the desires of our own hearts. Please do have mercy on us and forgive us. Lord, we, we pray again this morning for the people of Ukraine and Russia. We pray for your mighty intervention and for your wisdom and guidance, both to leaders and to citizens. We thank you for the many who are taking in refugees or who are bravely fighting for good right now. We lift up to you those who are hurting in our body here. We put each and every hurting person and situation in your good and loving hands, asking for your comfort and peace and endurance. We pray especially for Marilyn Lee, for Marilyn and Leland's two sons, and um, for all of Leland's family and friends who are grieving his loss. We thank you that we can rejoice that he is now with you, um, and we ask for your comfort for his loved ones. God, thank you for the opportunity to gather as a family this morning. As I was reminded this week, you, you mold and shape us through our daily or weekly routines and liturgies that we practice, and coming together on Sunday mornings is one of those forming activities, so we just thank you so much for this time. We give you this morning as we hear um, a message and connect with each other, may you be present with us, giving words um, to Bernard and shape us this morning. Prepare us to walk into the world again this week. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, in the spirit of preparation, both for the rest of this morning and also for the week ahead, um, we are going to recite together the Apostles' Creed. So um, I'd love for you to stand again with me, and let's read this statement of faith together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And today for our scripture reading, we will be reading from Daniel 12. It's the last of the series. Today's scripture is shorter than last week's, um, and I'm going to invite Howard Kaizinga up to read that with me. 
At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress, such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times, and half a time, when the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise and to receive your allotted inheritance. Thank you. And I will now invite Bernard up to unpack that text for us. Thank you, Christine and Howard, for uh, the reading of God's word to us. Well, today marks uh, two years since we uh, closed the PBCC campus, uh, March 13th, 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, no one thought that the tunnel would be so long and that it would be so dark. Several times we thought that we had emerged from the tunnel into the light, only uh, to go back into uh, the darkness as cases um, surged again. And we've lost count of how many uh, waves we've been through, so we're all familiar with these sorts of charts showing wave after wave after wave of COVID, um, cases there on the left and deaths on the right over the last two years for Santa Clara County. But we all hope that uh, now that we're exiting the Omicron wave, that we really are exiting the tunnel and that uh, any future variants will not create uh, new waves that cause new restrictions. And then meanwhile, uh, over the last two and a half weeks, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has is grinding on, um, midway through its third week now. And the world is trying to adjust to a new normal now that uh, Putin has unmasked himself for all to see. 
Uh, and no one knows where this will lead and how dark it will get, how it might end, how long the tunnel will be, or how dark it will be. And despite the heroic resistance of the Ukrainians, uh, the situation is getting darker by the day with no light on the horizon. Uh, and then as for myself, I've been having my own uh, sort of tunnel experiences each week. Um, as I preach through these difficult texts, of which sort of weigh on me, and uh, each Monday morning I wonder how on earth am I going to turn a complicated text into a sermon and initially see no light. And then as the week goes on, see more and more light, and by Sunday morning emerge out of the tunnel into uh, some idea of uh, how to present the chapter. And I'm sure some of you have your own tunnel experiences. Uh, for some of them, you, you might see light, and for others, feel that you're still in the darkness with no light on the horizon. Well, we've just heard Daniel chapter 12, and uh, over these last six weeks, we've accompanied Daniel uh, through his four visions, and in each vision, he has been told that dark days are coming for God's people. And in this fourth vision, uh, this is now our third week looking at, the darkness intensifies under the, quote, the contemptible person, the despicable person, um, who is a final king of the north, and he acts against God's people in the holy city, Jerusalem. And the Jewish community is divided in its response to him. Some, we saw last week, side with the oppressor in return for reward, and others, uh, they're the ones who forsake and violate the Holy Covenant. Uh, they've been corrupted by the ruler. And then others resist him actively or passively. And in particular, we saw the wise who engage in the passive resistance of teaching. They enable others to understand the times. They speak truth to power, unmasking evil. And for this, they are killed. They are martyrs. Now, the Ukrainians have been speaking with a united voice, much to the surprise of Putin. They, too, are speaking truth to power, while Putin is hiding the truth behind a smokescreen of propaganda, deceit, and outright lies. And the Ukrainians do not want to be saved from the Russians. Instead, they want justice. They want retributive justice, um, for Putin to be held responsible for his war crimes, and they want restorative justice for Ukraine to be rebuilt, for all the damage to be repaired, perhaps using frozen Russian funds. So two types of justice. So retributive justice punishes the evildoer, but it doesn't heal the evil done by the evildoer. For that, you need restorative justice, which repairs the damage from the evil, and the best restorative justice actually repairs the evildoer himself or herself. So as we were reading through uh, chapter 11 last week, where was justice as the king of the north was attacking God's people? And uh, by the end of chapter 11, justice is needed for three groups of people. Justice on the oppressor, that is the contemptible person, the final king of the north. Justice on those who have broken faith, who have been disloyal to the covenant by siding with the oppressor. They have forsaken God. And then justice for those who have been martyred for being faithful. So there's a need for both retributive justice and for restorative justice. Now chapter 11 built to a disturbing climax. 
where we read last week that the final king will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many, which sounds just like what Putin is doing right now. He's been frustrated in his plan to bring Ukraine back within the Russian fold and uh, seems determined to wreak as much dev devastation and destruction as possible. Just as he did in uh, the Chechen capital of Grozny back in 1999, and just as he did in Aleppo, Syria, in 2016. And here in Daniel, we read then that the king will pitch his royal tents at the beautiful holy mountain. So he encamps outside Jerusalem, the city of God, and of his people to make a final assault um, against God. So the last battle is nigh. But that battle is not actually fought because the chapter closes, the second half of the last verse, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. So justice is meted out on the arrogant ruler. He meets his end at the time of the end. So the Lord's appointed time that we read of three times in the chapter for his end had arrived. Justice is accomplished, evil is halted, the evildoer is terminated. But what about all the damage that he has left? Now here we have a chapter break, which is unfortunate because the angel's message, which forms the heart of this fourth vision, carries on into the first four verses of chapter 12. Now, chapter breaks were not added uh, until the 12th century, um, so they're not part of the initial text. And uh, these four verses are very important. And the first verse details what will happen at that time, the time of the end. And the word time is mentioned four times just in this first verse. So it will be a time of distress. Uh, a time of distress or that has been unprecedented, not since the beginning of nations, as NIV has it, I think, but specifically since Israel's existence as a people because the actions of the final king are an existential threat to Israel and therefore to God's purposes. You see, Israel is not just any nation. God called Abram out of the 70 nations to form a new people, God's people. Abram was, new, was God's new beginning in response to the chaos and disorder of the Tower of Babel. But his recovery plan seems in jeopardy with what this final king is doing. Evil and consequent suffering reach a crescendo, a great tribulation. And as we've seen repeatedly in these chapters, the darkest and the coldest hour is just before dawn. So, is there any hope at this point? Is there any light at the end of the tunnel at that time? Will God's restorative purposes that he has worked through Israel survive? Well, Israel's tribulation will persist until that time, but help is on the way. At that time, Michael, the great prince of Israel, will arise. Now, he is the heavenly counterpart of earthly Israel. We met him back in uh, chapter 10. And the conflict on earth is mirrored in heaven. And Michael has been busy fighting the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. These are the dynamic, demonic spiritual powers that lie behind those empires. And now he will come to Israel's aid. And also at that time, God's people, Daniel's compatriots, 
will be delivered from the darkness and the tribulation. So who is delivered? Who escapes? Well, God has a register of names. And elsewhere uh, in the Old Testament scriptures, it's called the Book of Life, or occasionally the Book of Remembrance. And all those whose names are in the book will be delivered. How do they escape? How are they delivered? They're not delivered from death, but through death. So where then is justice? If God's faithful saints have died, the martyrs. Well, we're told in verse two, many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. And here sleep and awaken are clear metaphors for death and new life because there will be resurrection. Those who awaken do so to different destinies. Some rise to everlasting life, others rise to shame and everlasting contempt. And these are those who forsook the Holy Covenant back in chapter 11. These are those who broke faith with God. And then verse three specifies who the first group is, who those are who rise to everlasting life. They are the wise. They are those who lead many to righteousness. And they will shine brightly, as bright as the brightness of the sky in the daytime, like the brightness of the stars at night. Now, we saw back in chapter 11, and we've repeatedly seen throughout these four visions, the blasphemous king had exalted and magnified himself above every god. He had made an assault on heaven. So each of these kings was following the pattern of the Babylonian king who we read of in Isaiah chapter 14. Quote, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. I will make myself like the most high. See, the arrogant ruler exalts himself to the heavens and is cast down. And this is the pattern of every human ruler who does as he pleases. And on the other hand, God's faithful servants follow the opposite trajectory. They had been cast down to the ground by their oppressors in chapter 11. They had been killed while being faithful. But God exalts these faithful martyrs to the heavens. The wise will be vindicated and exalted. These are the faithful resistors that we read of in the previous chapter. By their instruction, they lead many to righteousness. That is, they teach God's people how to remain true and faithful to his covenant, loyally devoted to him, while living in a foreign empire, while living in difficult times. They may die for their faithfulness, but they will be vindicated, vindicated in resurrection. And this language is echoed by Jesus in his Olivet Discourse, Mark, Matthew thir Mark 13, where he says, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So here in Daniel chapter 12, verses two and three, we have the clearest reference in the Old Testament to resurrection. And conviction about resurrection arose from the problem of martyrdom. Where is justice when God's faithful people are killed specifically for being faithful to him? And what would that justice look like? 
Well, I think this has been an issue ever since Abel, who was the first martyr killed by his brother Cain. He was killed while being faithful. He was killed for being faithful. And his blood cried out to the ground to God. And retributive justice on Cain could not bring justice for Abel's spilt blood. That needed restoration. And the only adequate answer to that is resurrection, restorative justice. So the message of this vision ends on this positive note of resurrection. The time just before the end is very dark, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. God's faithful people will be vindicated by being restored to life in resurrection. And now Daniel is told to seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end, which from his vantage point is far, far in the future. How far in the future? Well, Daniel wants to know, and so he asks in verse seven, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? And he receives a cryptic answer. It will be for a time, times, and half a time. Well, this is similar to the answer was given back in chapter seven in the first vision for how long the blasphemous little horn will oppress God's holy people. And there he was told it will be for a time, times, and half a time, where that middle word times, uh, it's clear that that refers to two times. So we have a total of three and a half times. And then it's assumed that the same is here, that we have three and a half times, and further assumed that this is, refers to three and a half years, that is 42 months. Now we can empathize with Daniel who writes, I heard, but I did not understand. And perhaps you've been feeling that all the way through these last six weeks, reading these uh, uh, difficult chapters of all four visions. Um, certainly at first reading or 10th reading, there is much that is difficult to understand. Um, so uh, later, Daniel is told two more time periods in verses 11 and 12, 1,290 days, 1,335 days, uh, which just compounds the problem of how difficult this is to understand. And these work out to 43 and 44 and a half months. So these three time periods form a sequence, 42, 43, 44 and a half months. And if you take the first one, 42 as a baseline, the increase is one month and then two and a half months for a total of three and a half, which may or may not refer back to the three and a half times. Um, but either way, the meaning of these three items, three terms, is elusive. Well, as we draw this series to a close, I want to look back over Daniel's four visions because there is a common pattern to them. And in the first vision, in chapter seven, Daniel sees a sequence of four beasts from which come 10 horns uh, and finally a little horn. And this final figure, the little horn, does evil against both God and his people, the saints. So the little horn speaks arrogantly and against God and it attacks and defeats the saints. But there is justice, both on the evil oppressor and for God's faithful saints. Retributive justice against the little horn, its power is taken away and it is destroyed. 
and justice for the saints, the Ancient of Days issues a judicial ruling in their favor, and theirs will be the eternal kingdom. How long will this be? For a time, two times, and half a time. In the second vision, in chapter eight, Daniel sees in sequence a two-horned ram, a one-horned goat, from which come four horns, followed by a little horn, which grows great. And this little horn exalts itself even to heaven, and it attacks and destroys God's people. It terminates the daily sacrifice and installs the abomination of desolation. But it is destroyed by a non-human hand, i.e. by God. And for how long will this be? For morning and evening, 2,300 times. In the third vision, in chapter nine, Jerusalem will be rebuilt, but a coming ruler will destroy both city and temple. He will terminate the daily sacrifice and install the abomination of desolation. And how long? For 77s, broken down into seven and 62 and one. And now in the fourth vision, chapters 10 through 12, Daniel sees a contemptible person, a ruler who in fury attacks God's people and temple. He desecrates the sanctuary, terminates the daily offering, installs the abomination of desolation. He is self-exalting even to heaven. And God's people are divided. Some are seduced by the little horn and profit from aligning themselves with him. But the wise engage in passive resistance. They teach others to understand so they can be righteous, not wicked, so they can be faithful, not unfaithful, so they can be loyal to the one true God, not switch their loyalty to a human king. But this king will come to his end at the moment of his greatest assault on God. And then the faithful will be resurrected to life eternal. Those who sold out will go to a shame and everlasting contempt. And how long will this be? For a time, times, and half a time, for 1,290 days, for 1,335 days. So perhaps 42, 43, 44 and a half months. So we see the same pattern across all four visions. A human ruler exalts himself far above his proper station, even to the heavens. He grasps after equality with God. And he attacks earth God's people, desecrating God's sanctuary. He seems all powerful. But on the other hand, God will enact justice, judgment upon the arrogant ruler and vindication for his faithful saints who ultimately receive resurrection and a place in his eternal kingdom. So retributive justice on the arrogant ruler, restorative justice for God's faithful people. This is the pattern of history. Now in the short term, the pattern was fulfilled in Antiochus IV, king of the Seleucid Empire. And this king who proclaimed himself Theos Epiphanes, God made manifest on earth, met his end. And then there was a metaphorical resurrection as Israel became an independent kingdom for 80 years but it was corrupt. The rulers abused power and it ended in civil war. And the irony is that the Romans came in to put down the civil war between the Jews. 
And it became clear that Israel was as much part of the problem as the pagan empires. That Israel was no better. Israel had failed in its mission to be the new humanity. And it was into this darkness that God sent his beloved as the light. But his own did not receive him. Instead, they put out the light and saying, we have no king but Caesar. The leadership of his own people handed him over to the empire of the day to be executed as a rebel. Evil had won. The one faithful human had been rejected and killed. He'd been martyred. Where was justice? And what had happened to God's purposes for humanity when humanity had put out the one point of light? And so the world lay in darkness for that first day, through the second day, and into the third day. Where was the light? And then God vindicated his martyred faithful servant in resurrection. And justice required this because death had no rightful claim on Jesus. Note he was resurrected into a physical body, a physical life in a physical body. And then God did a most surprising thing. He did not point his finger at rebellious humanity and retributive justice. Instead, he spread his arms wide and offered restorative justice. He invited rebellious humanity to come and receive forgiveness and new life in Christ. And when we give our loyalty to Jesus and are in Christ, we participate in his death and resurrection. This is symbolized in baptism, in which we go down into the waters, pass through the waters, and emerge into new life. It is worked out daily as we die to self and put on Christ, and it will be fully realized when Christ returns, and we shall be raised bodily and incorruptible. Now, we recited the Apostles' Creed this morning. I believe in Jesus Christ, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into, I still just can't help but saying hell or the dead. Uh, on the third day, he rose again. He rose again. And then later we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So what God did with Jesus' body, he will do with our body bodily, physical resurrection. And this is the ultimate restorative justice. But it goes beyond restorative justice because we will be more than we once were. We shall be in transformed bodies just as Jesus was in a transformed body. And we shall be fully conformed to the likeness of Christ and readied for God's presence in glorious light from which all darkness has been banished. And this is the ultimate light at the end of the tunnel. Now, our presence with God isn't just us floating on a cloud in heaven going to be with Jesus, but it is presence with God on a renewed and restored earth as heaven comes to earth and heaven and earth are joined together in a tangible physical space because God cares about the world that he had made. And meanwhile, we also affirm the communion of saints. Namely, that those who have died 
in Christ and those of us who are still alive are in communion together as the one people of God. The dead shall be raised, the living shall be transformed, and all shall ultimately be in physical bodies on a physical, restored, renewed earth. Now, much of the imagery of Daniel, as we've seen each week, has been car is carried over into the book of Revelation. Uh, which again, your women are studying, so you're getting all this in stereo, as it were. Uh, and there it's revisioned through Christ Jesus, who is the antithesis of the self-exalting ruler. And the beast of Revelation is all the beasts and the horns of Daniel rolled up into one. This beast speaks arrogant words and he is worshiped by a deceived humanity. He wages war on the saints and he conquers them. And the martyrs cry out, how long until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? How long until you execute retributive justice on the beast and the inhabitants of the earth and how long till you execute restorative justice in avenging our blood? How long? Well, the duration is specified five times in three different ways. A time, time, and half a time, 42 months, 1,260 days. And what happens during this time? We read that the holy city is trampled. The two witnesses prophesy and are killed by the beast. They are martyred. The woman is nourished in the wilderness, and the beast seems to have all the power and rule on earth. And I understand this to be the entirety of the church age where all of these things are going on. God's faithful people are, are bearing their faithful witness to Jesus. They are faithful witnesses for which they get killed. The beast seems to have absolute power, beastly rulers, but God's church woman is preserved Um, throughout, this, uh, throughout this period. And at the end, the beast gathers his forces for a final battle, the last battle, at the place called Armageddon, the Mount of Assembly. And three times we read of them gathering, but each time it's over before the battle is even fought. And then the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, and God issues a ruling in favor of the martyrs. In chapter 20, verse four, there's a clear reference back to Daniel seven. This ruling that is issued is they live. And they follow in the pattern of Jesus who was dead but lives and now those, the martyrs who are dead, now live. Now, for Daniel, how is he to live in the light of the vision that he has received? Well, the linen-clad man tells Daniel in verses nine and 13, go your way, Daniel, go your way to the end. See, the end is determined. God has an appointed time. Meanwhile, carry on living your life, but do so in light of the wisdom, understanding, and discernment provided by the visions. And the crisis will create a divide between those who respond well and those who respond poorly because some will be faithful and some will be faithless, as we read in verse 10. 
Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. And this verse, you can see, has a chiastic construction to it. And in the inner pair, the wicked will continue to be wicked. And that word wicked is the opposite of righteous. In both of these are relational terms. The righteous person acts faithfully within his relationships. The wicked person acts unfaithfully. So the wicked acts unfaithfully towards God and towards others. And these are the ones in chapter 11 who forsake the holy covenant, who violated the covenant. And they prospered because the king of the north favored and flattered them. But he corrupted them because they failed to understand the times. And thus they failed to respond faithfully in the times. But the outer pair of the chiasm is about the faithful. They will be purified and made spotless and refined which is the language we heard back in chapter 11 of the wise. They are martyrs, killed for their faithfulness to God. Now, how are they able to remain faithful even in the face of death? Because they are wise and they understand the times. They are able to see behind the curtain and discern the spiritual realities. They will not give their allegiance to the self-exalting ruler. Instead, they say loyal to the one true God in the face of death and through death. They entrust themselves to God and he will vindicate them in resurrection. And through their martyrdom, they are purified and refined and ready to shine brightly in the resurrection. Now, in the book of Daniel, Daniel is the paradigmatic wise person. And in the stories of the first half, he was able to work faithfully in the pagan king's service while also being loyal to God. He understood the times. But now he is to go his way and carry on living faithfully in a pagan empire. He's an old man, soon he will die. But the book closes with this reassurance in verse 13, you will rest and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. You will rest. You will rest in sleep. And then at the end of the days, which God knows, we don't know, you will rise. You will awaken and rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Not a disembodied life floating on a cloud, strumming a harp, but a physical life on a physical earth that has been renewed and restored. That is the light at the end of the tunnel for Daniel and similarly for us. Now we all face the challenge of how to live in the world while being loyal to a different kingdom, just like Daniel. And Daniel and Revelation are the two main apocalyptic works in scripture and they draw back the veil to show us the unseen realities in the spiritual realm not to feed our curiosity, and not to enable us to fill in detailed timelines, but to give us wisdom, understanding, and discernment so that we can remain faithful to God while living here on earth, just as Daniel did. And Revelation calls us to wisdom and to endurance. And we read that the saints conquer the beast by the blood of the lamb, and 
by their faithful endurance. It doesn't matter that the beast seems to have conquered them with his great power. Now, resurrection is important because it affirms the value of this world and of our life on this world. And our life in this world has value, whether in paid employment, whether in parenting and homemaking, whether in learning, whether in volunteer service. We live in a physical material world that requires work. We live in a physical material world that God created and that he cares for and he loves. Full-time Christian paid ministry is not a higher calling, a status for those that are really committed. Instead, we all of us work together here on this earth. And may we labor faithfully in all that we do as unto the Lord. May we labor faithfully in whatever earthly realm we're in while also being loyal to the kingdom of God. So these two books, Daniel and Revelation, um, I keep referring to Revelation partly because you women are studying Revelation, but also partly because so much of Daniel reappears in Revelation. So you're hearing this all in stereo. These two books speak truth to power. They unmask the powers of what they are. And they also reveal the Lord Jesus Christ as God's antithesis to the rulers of Daniel and the beast of Revelation. The lion has conquered, has conquered by being the slain lamb. Power is turned upside down. God manifests his power in apparent weakness. And we are called to follow the lamb wherever he goes. He is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And we follow him in that trajectory in faithful witness through death to participation in his rule in God's eternal kingdom. So the book of Daniel encourages the wise to remain faithful and to instruct others on how to remain faithful. And Revelation encourages us to remain loyal and devoted to the one who is truly worthy of our allegiance. Revelation shows us who is and who is not worthy of our loyal devotion. Amen. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship, the participation of the Holy Spirit in us be with us all now and evermore. Amen. Go in peace.